Psalm 17. So if you want to grab a Bible and open up to Psalm 17, we've been doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Psalms, and uh, we're now in Psalm 17. One of the things that I want to challenge you guys with um, in your own devotion time with the Lord and reading God's Word. You know, there's many ways to, to read God's Word on your own. Um, probably you guys have at least one or many different variants of how you have your own personal time in study. Sometimes it's with a devotion, right? You have, uh, there's a lot of great devotionals out there that we can read and, and, and glean a lot from God's Word. Um, we listen to other Bible teachers. I hope you guys listen to other uh, Bible teachers who are teaching God's Word. Um, even I listen to other people, even in our own community here, other pastors on a somewhat regular basis, just to be fed and filled up and um, to be sustained. And, and um, of course, other Calvary Chapel guys I listen to as well. Um, you can read uh, uh, commentaries uh, along with God's Word to kind of help get some insight into what you may be reading. You can systematically read. I mean, who here is systematically read through the Bible or right now is systematically reading through the Bible? Yeah, that's, that's a good way to uh, even have your morning time uh, with God is to systematically read through the Bible. And there's a lot of good Bible reading plans out there where you can like read through the Bible in a whole year. Um, some, for me, lots of times, I like to just listen to the Bible on CD. I don't know if you guys do that as well. There's lots of different things, but one of the things I want to challenge you with is one of the things that I think we're being challenged with in this psalm this morning specifically is to look at, um, when we come to God's Word, to look at the heart issues behind what we're reading, the things that God desires to speak to our heart, the things that God desires to make known to us on a heart level that is really reflected in in our attitudes. And um, one of the things that this psalm deals with is really our attitude in prayer and, and, and how we come to God in prayer and what is in our hearts um, as we come to God in prayer. Because the truth is, is lots of times we can come to God in prayer and our attitude is not um, influenced by um, what, what God had me has, has told us or instructed us on how we should come to Him. It, sh- it can be uh, influenced by what's going on in our lives, Right? Just like it is in many things, you know, uh, our, our, our emotions, if we allow them, can dictate so much of our actions. And, and that cannot be the case um, when it comes to our relationship with God. We shouldn't be moved by our emotions because if we are, um, it, it, there's a chance that it can be in a negative way. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't feel love for God and, and, and have an emotional response to that and these kind of things. But David in the psalm specifically bees of, is, is speak, specifically talking about being in a time of distress. And um, one of the things that we're always told in Scripture when we're facing those things, as I read God speak to his people and to us, is he encourages them to not lose heart, to have to have courage, right? To not worry, to not be anxious. And um, when we do that, when we're in those places, it can negatively affect um, the way we live our lives and, of course, how we relate to God, especially in regards to prayer. So with that kind of um, introduction this morning, before I read the psalm, I want to break it down into three sections because as we summarize these three sections, what I think that it does is it helps us to understand the main point, the main thought. 
And, and, and we want to keep the foundation correct when we go through a passage of Scripture like this because if we understand the main thought or the main point, we keep everything that we're being told in context. And in light of what we read here in this first verse, I'm not going to read it yet, but you can look there. I'll highlight a couple of things. But, but because of what we read in this first verse where David asks to be heard, right? He, he first asks for God to hear him, hear a just cause, David says, and then for God to attend to him, we see that David once again was crying out. That's the word that is actually used here, is that David was, had, had, had attend to my cry, David says. So he's crying out to God in a time of distress. A, a, a time, according to verse 9, if you look a little bit further down in the psalm, where, where David says that he was oppressed by the wicked and surrounded by his enemies. Oppressed by the wicked and surrounded by his enemies. So David called out, asking for God to hear a just cause. And, and that phrase should, should um, resonate in your, in your mind and in your heart as we go through the rest of this because that's a, that's a bold statement that David makes. Hear a just cause. But in doing so, David went on to validate the reasons why God should hear his cause and see it as a just cause, to validate this appeal, because David's going to appeal for many things. He's going to ask God in this time of distress for many things. And in the very first section, which is in verses 2 through 4, um, David validates this appeal, and he does so on the basis of his honesty, on the basis of, of, of his integrity, and he asks God, really, to look at the things that are upright. In other words, look into my life and see. Examine me, God, and see. See if there's this just cause. And then in verses 5 through 8, alongside verse 13, because David kind of picks back up uh, towards the end of this chapter and can connect some things together in regards to these requests. But in verse 13, David petitioned God to then uphold him. And literally to sustain him and preserve him from the wickedness of his enemies. And then lastly, in nine, verses 9 through 12, the last and final section of this, this psalm, and, and, and again in conjunction, uh, the, the verse at the end that goes along or coincides along with this section is verse 14, David then makes a contrast. And that, that's a common thing we see in a lot, of the, a lot of the psalms where there's these contrasts being made and helping us to identify and see some things. And what David does is he makes a contrast between himself and between his enemies. And in doing so, he details, he accounts their evil actions. He, he, he labels them as certain kinds of people. As a matter of fact, David will say, they got fat hearts. And it's, it's kind of funny, but um, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. He's, all, he, he's got a fat, they say that his enemies got fat hearts. And um, so he details their actions and, 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 and who they are as people, um, really at a heart level. And again, that's what God wants to deal with us again this morning is on our heart level. But God, David does this, and he, it's, in doing so, it's a plea. He makes a plea um, for God to intervene and for God to defend him in this time of distress. And then the final verse in the last verse of this prayer, verse 15, we see that David is moved. And, and, and I love this, that the, the moving that takes place here is not because of his circumstances, it's not because of his emotions, it's not because of the distress, the move is because of faith. And I talked about this when we first started the book of Psalms, and we've accounted this as we've gone through the Psalms, is there's always this, this time or this moment where the author expresses faith, where, where faith changes the situation. And David is moved by faith as he ultimately finds his comfort 
throughout through the, the, the circumstances in the psalm and the things that he's talking about, even in the request that he makes to God, it, 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 he finds comfort in his future eternal happiness. He'll ask God for some specific things, but he doesn't equate, um, he doesn't equate his, his happiness, um, his, his faith, even though it's in what God's going to do, it's greater than that. It's this different perspective that David looks at to bring into these requests that gives him this, this happiness, eternal happiness, not, and it's not in an earthly deliverance. And see, sometimes our prayers... Our, and our requests and our vision as we look at them are limited to only temporal things. We don't look at them or make these requests or enter into the presence of God with that eternal perspective. Because David will say, even in death, I know you're with me. Even in death, I know you're with me. So this morning, as we pray um, and we read the psalm, um, I also want to pray, if you guys will pray with me, for um, Skyline, the Skyline Mennonite Church. Uh, it's one of the churches in the community that we pray for on a regular basis. Uh, that church also has the ministry of New Horizons. And of course, New Horizons, it's not just the thrift store. They support and do all kinds of outreach and, and benevolence into our community. And they actually, one of the ones that, that is a regular, um, con- they contribute regularly to the, the Bridge Youth Center. So let's pray for um, them as well as our time together. So if you'll bow your heads with me. Lord, we thank you for this time where we can be together. Lord, thank you for the wonderful and awesome worship that we had this morning, God, where we could sing about your greatness, where, Lord, there's really songs of praise and songs of joy that are expressed through the words, God, that um, draw our attention to who you are and the promises that you've made to us and the hope that we have in you. And Lord, I pray that that would continue to happen as we look at your word, the words that David wrote here in Psalm 17. And God, that through the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that transcends down to today, God, that um, we would be met where we're at. Lord, that we would be encouraged in the midst of the discouragement, Lord, that we would find hope in you and be reminded of the hope that we have in you, Lord, even when everything around us seems to be hopeless. And Lord, ultimately that we, like David, would be moved by faith to look at the life that we have been given and and, and the lives that we're living and the things that are going on in our world around us, Lord, that we would look at it to be reminded again today to look at it with a heavenly perspective, with an eternal perspective, God, that we wouldn't be limited by what we can only see with our eyes, Lord, but that we would walk by faith in you. And, and remember the promises that you've made to us, Lord. And as we think about and pray for the other churches in our community, Lord, we think about our brothers and sisters over at Skyline Mennonite Church. Lord, they, we know they love you. We know that they um, know your son Jesus, that they preach the gospel message, that they teach the word of God, your word, Lord, and that um, their faith in you is reflected, God, um, by how they serve you and serve others in this community. And we thank you for them. And we pray, God, that you would bless them, that you would continue to abundantly provide for them. And Lord, that ultimately that your kingdom would be um, made great through them here on this earth. And the actions and the love, Lord, that they pour out to the people around them. And um, Lord, we pray that would be true here at Livingstone Calvary Chapel. Lord, I thank you for each person gathered here together this morning and those who are watching online. Father, meet us where we're at. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's read verse 1, Psalm 17. David writes and he says, Hear a just cause, O Lord. And of course, David's speaking about his cause, right? He's speaking about his circumstances. 
And, and um, I think that's an interesting way of coming to God in prayer. And I, I, I don't think we may have articulated it when we prayed to God with those words, but I think all of us have come to God with the same kind of mindset. Lord, hear a just cause. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Verse 2, let my vindication come from your presence. This is the first specific request for vindication. Let my vindication come from your presence. In other words, God, you show up strong on my behalf. You reveal the truth. He said, let your eyes look on the things that are upright. You have tested my heart, you have visited me in the night, and you have tried me and found nothing. I have purpose that my mouth shall not transgress. <coughs> Excuse me, concerning the works of men. By the words, by the word of your lips, I have kept away from the paths of destroyers, of the destroyer. And um, verse five, uphold my steps in your paths, that my footsteps may not slip. I have called upon you, for you will hear me, O God. Incline your ear to me and hear my speech. Show your marvelous kindness, your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. The hand of blessing, right? O you who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. Keep me, verse 8, is the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings from the wicked who oppress me, from the deadly enemies who surround me. They have closed up their fat hearts with their mouths. They speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They have set their eyes crouching down to the earth as a lion is eager to tear his prey and like a young lion lurking in secret places. <clears throat> Verse 13, Arise, O Lord, confront him, cast him down. Deliver my life from the wicked with your sword, with your hand from men, O Lord, from men of the world who have their portion in this life and whose belly you have fill, with whose belly you fill with your hidden treasures. They are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their possessions for their babes. As for me, and really what, what David's pointing out there is just this focus on the temporal, right? These two perspectives, just a, a limited earthly perspective and this life alone, and then the eternal perspective and, and the eternal promises of God, uh, David mentions here in verse 15 when he says, but as for me, I will see your face in righteousness and I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. And Lord, may that be true for us. May we be satisfied Lord, with the hope and knowledge of going to be with you for all eternity. And Lord, we know that you're coming soon, and we pray and ask God that you'd come quickly. We're waiting for you, Lord. We love you. We know you're coming back for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so in the beginning of this psalm, there's an inscription like there is with most, and the inscription in this psalm says that it's a prayer of David. A prayer of David. And this is only one of five of the Psalms in total that are identified as a quote-unquote prayer. There are many, um, the, the, oh, excuse me, well, real quick, the others, the other four, if you want to know and kind of go read them and look at them together, but there's Psalm 86, Psalm 90, Psalm 102, and then the last one that is a Psalm of prayer by um, by this, this title is Psalm 142. 
And, and the unusual thing about this, because if you've read through the book of Psalms, if you read the Psalms, you're going to go, you're kind of like, this is strange that these would have this title when the others don't, because um, almost every one of the other Psalms, all the other Psalms, they, they, they contain prayers. They're, they're, they're not just being put out there into the universe, right? As you, if you've run into some people who are kind of new age in their thought and the theory, it's like, you know, sending out positive energy, you know? And... Um, that's not what the psalmists are doing. They're not, not putting out there. They're, they're talking to God. And anytime we talk to God, it's a communication. It's, it's a prayer. But these are different and, and unique because they have these, these titles, this title, a prayer. And this one's a prayer of David. As a matter of fact, all the others are also prayers of David. The only other one, I can't remember which one it is for sure. I think it's maybe Psalm 102, but it's a prayer of Moses. Um, but these, these five, I think they're set apart for us with this specific title, um, and, and, and in doing so, it, it, we, we, get the, we get the idea that perhaps it was to be a congregational thing. These were corporate prayers, congregational prayers that were to be used in public worship, probably during the annual feast when people would come to the temple or the tabernacle to worship God, that they would be led in these prayers. And this would be one of the, the five in total that are in the book of Psalms. Now, in the Hebrew language, when you, you begin to research this out a little bit, there's at least a dozen different words that are used for the word prayer. But the Hebrew word that's used in this psalm and, and in the other four, all are with the word tefliah, which can also mean to pray a prayer, almost as if it's an instruction to pray this prayer, right? Or to intervene, and this is definitely a prayer of intervention. And so we should see overall that this psalm is a call for God to intervene, for God to come into David's life and to take action. And, and we need to also see that this request is made from the place of hopeful expectation. And that's where the heart issue really comes in here as it sets the stage for the rest of what we read here because what is the heart behind why we're saying what we're saying to God? And for David here, the heart was a heart that was filled with hopeful expectation. It was a heart that had an attitude of praise, and not from the place of despair. And so that can seem a little bit different to us as well, because usually when you're in a time of distress, you're in despair, right? And I don't know about you, but there's been times when I've been in distress, and I've, had, I've, 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 I've um, been in despair, and I've come before God, and my prayer isn't with hopeful expectation. Sad to say. There is no joy behind the request that I'm making. It's almost with this doom and gloom mentality. It's like, God, you know what's going on. I'm going to pray to you, but I don't really know if there's anything that can be done here. And, and that's not the attitude that David has, and that's not the attitude that we're called to have when we come to prayer in God. The Bible tells us that we, 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 we already operate in our lives from a place of victory. Do we not? The battle's already won. We know the end. And that's part of the reason why we know that David's coming with this attitude of hopeful expectation, with joy in his heart as he's speaking to God about this time of distress, is because he's looking at it from the perspective of seeing the end. Even in death, he says, I will be with you. I'll be like you. And when we look at that, guys, and we put the rest of our lives into perspective, we see the futility of this life and the futility of some of the things that we go through in the sense of um, maybe it's not as bad as we think it is, right? We look at it through a different lens. 
We look at it through the lens of promise. We look at it through the lens of, of joyful expectation of what God has already done and who he, he, we, he says we are in him. And, and one of the ways that this is evident, you're going, how, how am I coming to this conclusion? Well, it's evident when you look at verse 4, or excuse me, verse 1, where David says this. He says, attend to my cry. And when we look at that with our own English language, we might think, as sometimes you and I both come to prayer, it's with tears. We're like, we're in distress. We're crying out, God, help, right? It's, it's, not with a, 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 it's not like we're jumping up and around and we're down and we're happy about it and we're filled with joy. But this word here, this Hebrew word that translates to the word cry is literally the word rina. And it means to sing, to proclaim. To sing or proclaim specifically with praise and joy. And that's what David is saying here. Lord, hear a just cause, attend to my rena, my song of praise and joy to you, my proclamation. And so in this prayer, with that being put forth, David, who is literally singing out to God, deals with three specific concerns. And with each concern, he makes a specific request to God. And in verse 1, David says here, Just cause, O Lord, and attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. I'm telling the truth, David says. Let my vindication come from your presence. Let your eyes look on the things that are upright. And so with these verses in this first section, we see that David's first request, that David, he calls out to God, and it's for vindication. Vindication. And in these first two verses, David, alongside of that, says, says, God, examine me, check me out, and vindicate me before my enemies. And this was because David believed, clearly, David believed his cause was just. In other words, David believed that he was in the right and that his enemies were in the wrong. And I believe that we all think that our cause is just when we call out to God and ask him to defend us or to move on our behalf. Do we not? We're not like, God, I know I'm wrong, but get them. They're right, but get them. I'm wrong. It's, we, always will, we always believe we're right when we come before God. And if, if you've been married for more than two weeks, you know exactly what that means. Very rarely, you know, you have to come to the place where you realize that maybe you're not right. And the fact of the matter is, is, that, is that our cause may not be just. Is that fair? Our cause may not be just. And we may not, we may be the one who is in the place of error. And as we all know, it's entirely possible for someone to think that their cause is just when it's not. And even for both parties in a fight to be absolutely convinced that his or hers, right, own cause is just. I'm right, you're wrong. I'm right, you're wrong. And so when we realize this, we need to start from this place of humility and we need to understand that we can't automatically apply these words of David to ourselves and immediately um, judge our cause as just. Yet we can look at our cause and we need to look at our cause as, impartial, as, as impartially and dispassionately as possible, taking the, the emotion out of it that sometimes can block how we see things and not be able to see the truth. 
And we do so, this is how we do it. We, we, we try to look at things from the perspective of others. That's a big deal. Try to look at something from the perspective of others and to do this to the best of our ability as we ask God to, to give us discernment. But ultimately, we need to be more concerned. Here's what, what, this is how you know if your cause, this is the best key I have found to determine if my cause is just or unjust is that I really need to be more concerned um, Um, with what is the truth rather than with what might just favor me. And sometimes when we come to God, it's not because we're concerned about the truth, it's because we're looking for something favorable for ourselves in regards to the outcome of the situation. More concerned with what is true and just than what simply favors us. In other words, before we go to God, before we ask God to intervene on ourselves, we should first look to see if we're if we're in the right, if we're in the right, if here's the, here's how do you, here's how you do it. It's not about asking um, God to be on your side. It's about making sure you're on God's side, right? It's been said that um, in the heat of the Civil War, the American Civil War, one of President Lincoln's advisors said that he was grateful that God was on the side of the Union. But to this statement, President Lincoln replied and said, "Sir." My concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. Now, the Hebrew word for vindicate here that David uses in verse 2 is this word mishpat. And it, it, it's, it's, it's a word that used, was used in the court of law most um, most times. It's, that's where it's identified with. It's a legal word that's used to describe um, judgment, specifically the act of deciding a legal dispute or a case, right? And we've used that before. We all, in one way or another, have asked to be vindicated, right? And when David asked for God to hear this just cause, it's obvious that he, with this perspective, this eternal perspective, eyes on God, first sees God as a just God, right? As a righteous judge, whose eyes, according to verse 2, as David says it, whose eyes look on the things that are upright. And because of that, David's making the statement that he knows that God's going to give him a fair trial. God's going to look at it. He's going to discern it. And, and from David's perspective, he's going to see that God sees it's right, and then God's going to decide rightly. Now, when we try to figure out the circumstances behind this, and it's not always necessary, but it, it kind of is interesting when we look at maybe what specific circumstances um, are behind why David would write these things. But when we look at that in, in relationship to what we read here, for God to, for David's call, for God to be a judge, it's possible that it could have been at a time in David's life, again, when he was um, trying to be killed by Saul, when he was running. And, and we don't know, that was 10 years of time there, it could have been any specific thing. I think it happened a little bit later on because of what some of the things David writes here about being tested and, and, and have kept away from the path of the destroyer and, 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 and watching his mouth and his tongue through that process. But what we know is that we talked about this a couple weeks ago um, when we were looking at, I think Psalm 14 is what it was, is that um, during that time, there were all kinds of lies being circulated by David, by Saul and by Saul's leaders, people saying false things about them, and, and even, even um, these men coming back to Saul, and Saul believing some of these lies himself. 
about David. And um, David knew the truth, right? He knew what the truth was. And in these situations, we know, we read through, is that David trusted in the fact that God also knew the truth. And if you've ever had anyone speak lies about you or to defame your character, make accusations against you in regards to your reputation, um, and you know what the truth is, and, 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 and God knows what the truth is, but what you know is, is that there's a lot of people who believe those lies that's been made or, 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 or said against you. And um, even though this may have not been the exact situation for where David had written this psalm, the fact of the matter is, is that David was asking God for help, right? And David based this request upon the fact that he believed he was in the right and that his enemies were in the wrong. And so David asked God to hear his plea. And he did so as he went on to say, to examine my life. Hear my plea, asking God to examine his life and then to declare his innocence and his integrity by giving him victory over his enemies. And David saw this as an, a, a, a tangible sign of vindication, right? Because this is the way that it would be known to all that David was on God's side, that David was in the right, and then everyone would know the truth about the situation. And ultimately, that's what we're praying for when we're in situations like that, where we're asking to be vindicated. We're asking that people will know the truth behind what's gone on, that it would be brought to the light. Now, all of us have probably found ourselves, I said, in situations where Lies have been spoken about us where there's really nothing that we can do to vindicate ourselves, no matter what we say. Nothing in our power to prove that we're right or that those who had falsely accused us in order to take advantage of us um, were the ones who were actually wrong. And anyone, if you've ever been in a place like that, you know that it's a distressful thing. It can be painful to go through. And so we, like David, in those times, if you know, if you've been there, you've asked for God to help because, because you were innocent. God, here, just cause. I'm innocent here. The things that people have said about me are not true. And you know that it was more than just something that was not related to actions. You know that it was an issue of the heart because your heart was in the right place before you came, because you came out to God for justice. You didn't try to seek justice on your own. In fact, we may have even declared our innocent and righteousness before God. And, and in doing so, what do we do? We say, God, um, I've done no wrong. I've done no wrong here. And this is exactly what David goes on to do. Look in verses three through four. He's recounting some things. God, you know, you've tested my heart. You've tried me and you found in doing so that I've not done anything wrong. And, and it's not that David was saying he was sinless or that he was saying he was a blameless man, right? He was saying that he was really a man of integrity that had been tested by God in regards to this instance or circumstance that he had found himself in. And if this psalm, listen, if this psalm had been written when David had fled from his enemies and when he was living in exile, we know that God had tested his heart. As a matter of fact, at the end of those 10 years of time when David's on the throne, David speaks to David and says that this time was a time of preparation. It was a time of testing, refining, and during this time of testing, we know that there were specific instances where David had opportunity to come against his enemies who happened to be Saul and his men. And we know that Saul had, was the anointed king of Israel at that time. 
And David would not speak evil against him. And matter of fact, we know that at least two different times, David had the opportunity to take Saul's life. And yet David would not raise his hand against God's anointed. And those were times of testing, times of trying. And so no matter what Saul and his men had said about David, David could honestly say here, that his mouth had not transgressed, so he had not spoken evil about the king at that time. And he had listened to God, and in doing so, he kept away from the path of destruction. That's such a, a simple thing here that's being spoken, but it's such an important thing to take note of. By the words of your lip, verse 4, I have kept away from the path, paths of the destroyer. And it reminds me of that passage of Scripture that says that there's a way that seems right to us, where we're listening to our own lips, our own thoughts, Right? and not to God's, and it's a path that, that leads to destruction. It's the path of destruction. And once again, we're reaffirmed in, 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 with other words, but the same principle that we keep away from the path of the destroyer, from that path of destruction, by listening to the words of God, by doing what God says. And, and what God says is always not going, it's, it's not always, but lots of times, it's not going to look right to us in the moment. And if we're looking at this instant with David, when he, when he was being tested by God, where he had opportunity to, to take revenge or take action against Saul, is that even his commanders who were with him is like, David, God's delivered him into your hands, take him. And David remembered the words of God. And he refused to do so, even though it looked like, from man's perspective, the right thing to do. And the only way that David was able to do this was to have a different perspective, to have God's perspective, an eternal perspective on it. And that eternal perspective that David took in this situation was rooted in the promises that God had spoken to David. Guys, and God's spoken promises to us. And we have to in these times when we feel distressed, when we feel like we need to be vindicated for whatever's gone on where we know we're in the right and everything else around us might be wrong and yet we're the ones that look to be in the wrong, but we know it's the right thing to do. We have to keep that eternal perspective and remember the covenant that God's made to us and the promises that he's spoken to us and continue to go by faith. And that's what David's doing here. He had listened to God and he had kept away from the path of destruction. And ultimately what David's saying, he's saying, Lord, and you've heard me say it before, you worry about my reputation here. Please vindicate me. I've been concerned about my character, the way that I live leading up to this, to be without fault, to be blameless before all men. Not sinless, but blameless. And, and that simply means that we're sinners who sin, but when we sin, we make it right. We confess it. We ask for forgiveness. And that's how we continue to have a blameless character before all men. It's not about perfection. It's about direction and submission to God as we go through this life. And that's what David had done. And we know, like I said, he could have killed Saul. But he says here, because of these things, right, that, that, that David's declaration of righteousness was not somehow then just an evidence of pride. There was no hypocrisy. It, it was ultimately what he's saying is, is an ultimately an evidence of David's faithfulness to God during difficult times. During times of great difficulty. And because David had this pure conscience in this situation towards God, throughout this situation, he called out to God and he, and he could safely then say this, here a just cause. And he wasn't inviting God to be on his side against his enemies. He's saying, God, I'm already on your side. I've been with you through this. 
Give attention to my cry, he says, and let my vindication come from your presence. But listen, this pure conscience that David comes before God with boldness and says, you're a just cause, is also what led David, led David in the next section of verses, in verses 6 through 12, to make this next request, and it was for God's protection. Specifically in verse 8, listen, I love this, where David says this, Keep me as the apple of your eye and hide me under the shadow of your wings. And in verses 9 through 11, right, David spoke two different times and, and he speaks about his situation and he has said, you know, my, my, my enemies have surrounded me, is what David said twice. And whether this was a literal thing or David was just using this as a figure of speech, right? We should understand that what David is telling us is what David is proclaiming to God is that he was in this place of helplessness within himself. And when his intellect, his resources, and his strength have completely failed, and now he's in need. And guys, we've, we've all been in that spot of utter and complete hopelessness, despair in the sense of when we look at ourselves, there is no hope. I can't think my way out of this, Right? I, I have no resources to get out of this, and I have no strength. Everything has failed, Lord. Surrounded. And the point is that David, this is it. David knew that he could not escape without God's help. And so he called upon the only one who could help him. And in this first verse, um, in, 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 in the first verse, back in the first verse of this, this psalm, David, when he had called out to God to hear and judge, he did so with the word, O Lord, right? And he used the Hebrew word there, Yehovah, which is the proper name of the God Israel, the one true God. It means something like the one who always is or the self-existent one. This is the same name that, that God revealed himself to Moses at the burning of the bush where he's all, who do I say? that you are. And he said, I am that I am. I am who I am. I am. But here in verse 6, when David calls out to God in this instance for protection, right, he says, oh God, it's not oh Lord. And the reason why it's different is because it's a different Hebrew word. It's a different name for God. It's not Jehovah. It's the word El, E-L. And, 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 and what that, that name is, is the, it's the Hebrew name that emphasizes um, God's strength, God's power, right? And if you're, if you're praying to God and you're calling out to him like, God, you're the all-powerful one. I have no strength. I'm calling out to you in the name of the all-powerful God, creator of the heavens and the earth, right? But the cool thing about this is that David's focus on verse 7 is not necessarily on the power of God when he calls out to God. Was it, what is it on in verse 7? The focus is on God's loving kindness, right? And in doing so, what David is doing for us and for himself here is he connecting, he's connecting God's ability to help, L, all-powerful, right, to God's willingness to help, the one who has loving kindness. And he calls upon God's love for him in this situation, in, in, in a sense, for David's protection. And I think that's significant because I think there's times that all of us have come to God and we're like, God, I know you can do this, but I doubt if you would do it for me. I know you might do it for Debbie because she's a worship leader. <laughs> you know, but God, would you do that for me? 
I know you can, but would. And David's pointing out both, that he's a God that can, a God that could, and a God who would, who does, who wants, because of his loving kindness for us. In fact, in verse 8, to illustrate this, David uses these two images, right? The eye and wings to remind God, to remind himself, to remind us that, that he and we are precious to him. The apple of the eye is a specific reference to the very pupil, the very center of the eye. It's the most delicate, the most needful part of the eye. And so when David asked for God to keep him as the apple of God's eye, what is he doing? He's asking for God to see him as important. God, see me as valuable. See me as important to you and precious to you. And the second image that David, David uses here is he asks to be hidden under the shadow of God's wings. And there's usually two different references, two different Pictures that are given here in Scripture when it talks about this. And one of them is with the brooding hen protecting her young, right? And in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, Jesus uses this illustration in regards to the, the, the nation of Israel. And he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And we all get the idea of that, the protection that comes from the mother hen, you know, bringing her babies underneath her wings. But that's not the instance in which David refers to here in, in being under the shadow of the wings of God. Keep me, he says, hide me under the shadow of your wings. And I love that it's, it's not the brooding mother hen type of thing, because it's, it's something more than that. Because what, it's, what this is often referring to when we read this is this reference to the outstretched wings of the cherubim that sat on either end of the mercy seat, which was on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the very throne of God, the earthly throne of God. And we know that the wings shadowed over it. And this is where the presence of God was. And it's referred to as the mercy seat. Keep me in the shadow of that, David is saying. But we know that the mercy seat, which was on top of the Ark of the Covenant, was in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, the very place where God would manifest himself to his people. And in light of this, this ask that David has, this statement that David's making, we can see that David was asking God, the God of all strength, the God of all power, to make his hiding place, God, hide me in your presence. That's what David was saying. In your shadow, at your side, Right next to you, Dad. That's a safe place. And even though David knew he could never physically enter the tabernacle, we talked about that last week when we were going through Psalm 16. He, he knew he could never go into the holy of the holies. Um, he knew this. He knew that God was not confined to a house, to an earthly tent. And that David knew he could still be in the presence of God no matter where he was at, which is the ultimate place of safety, guys. And when we think about that, again, looking back at the book of Hebrews, we have something so much greater now through the new covenant promises that we have in Christ that, that is so much better than what David had. Because in Hebrews chapter 10, in our time of need, when we are seeking God's protection, we've been given the right, the privilege to enter into the presence of God anytime we want because of what Jesus has done for us through his death and resurrection of the cross. He is our great high priest. 
In fact, we're told that we can enter into God's presence and come confidently or boldly to his throne of grace in our time of need, to be in the shadow of his wing. Now in verse 10, we see that David also used the, the descriptive imagery here when he spoke about his enemies, <coughs> saying that they closed up their fat hearts and spoke with, with, with proudly with their mouths. And I think that conjures all kinds of imagery in your mind. And I, I think about, you know, someone who has heart disease and their arteries are clogged, right? And it's all fatty and they're going to have a heart attack and they're going to die and, uh, if they don't get help. And, and, or even this, this image of it just being coated with, with fat and it's not operating and working. But I want you to hear, as David says this, it's not like it's some kind of slander. It's not, David's not like, you know, you know, schoolyard put down. Yeah, you got a fat heart. That's not what's going on. <laughs> he's, not, he's not slandering him before the Lord. Really, he's just kind of, he's telling us really that these enemies had a selfish heart, a hard heart towards God. And he's, he's recounting this. God, I've been like this, but God, they're like that. You know them. And when the Bible speaks of a heart in this way, it's always being used as a symbol for a person's, our center of decision-making, the place where our will comes forth. And even courage is found, right? In the heart. And so when David declares to God how his enemies has closed up their fat hearts, he was pointing out how they were ultimately morally and spiritually insensitive. That's what it's talking about. There's an insensitivity here to what, to what was right. And, and they weren't even the least bit upset when they did something wrong. And the Apostle Paul speaks about this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. And he refers to this hard heart, and he uses different imagery, but he said that they have a, a seared conscience, right? And the bottom line is a person who has a fat heart is like a calloused heart, a hard heart, someone who's, whose conscience is no longer sensitive to God's will or God's ways. And this was the reason for why David's enemies, according to verses 11 and 12, were now crouching down, right? They were insensitive to God's will, to God's way, and they were like a lion eagerly waiting to tear him into pieces. And the point is that in, 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 in all they were doing, they were first sinning against God. That's one of the things that David was pointing out. God, they're sinning against you. And man, that's a good reminder for us because... When, lots of times when we come and we're hearing a just cause, we're making it all, asking God to hear a just cause, we can get focused all on ourselves, And we lose sight of the fact that the lies and the deception and, and the sin that's taking place is first and foremost a sin against God. And so David called out for God to keep him, for God to protect him. But in these very last verses, David also called for God to rise up. Arise, O Lord, to come and rescue him. And in verse 13, David said that, Arise, O Lord, confront him, cast him down, deliver my life from the wicked with your sword. And so in this psalm, David spoke of God as a just judge who could vindicate him and as a powerful and loving protector who could keep him and hide him from his enemies. And in these last verses, David sees the Lord as his gracious redeemer, as, as one who would come and deliver his life from the hands of the wicked. And in these verses, these last verses, David portrays a clear contrast between the men of this world, as he labels them there in verse 14, right? Considered, concerned with the temporal things of this life, who live for and fill themselves only with the temporal things of this life. And he contrasts them to himself in verse 15, because he's speaking about desires. They desire this, but 
but as for me, he says, God, I desire that. And he speaks about his desire to be satisfied with the eternal things of God. And this call in verse 13 for the Lord to rise once again is with the, 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 that Hebrew word as he used in the beginning, the, the name of God, Jehovah, which is the proper name for the one true God. But that name is also, like I said, the name that was associated with the covenant. It's the name that was given um, to Abraham right there at the burning, or, or Abraham in the beginning, the Moses at the burning bush, and then again at Mount Sinai when the covenant was re, reaffirmed with the Hebrew people after being delivered out of Egyptian bondage. It is associated with the covenant name, and David refers to that specifically here for a specific reason, and when, because when we consider this, we should take note of the fact, when we, when we remember the rest of the Psalms that we've come through, is that David has used the same phrase with this name of God attached to it four other times up to now. Four other times, Psalm 3, verse 7, Psalm 7, verse 6, Psalm 9, verse 19, and then again in Psalm 10, verse 12, where he says, Jehovah, rise, arise, O Lord. And it's significant because the use of this request appears, when you see something like that systematically being repeated in Scripture, you should ask yourself why. And there's, there's a... There's a there's a, a thought process in regards to Scripture and, and contextually discerning it. It's, it's called the, 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 the it's, it has to do with when it was first used. When do you see this first used? Because David is referencing something specifically in that. And it's from, it's from Numbers chapter 10, verse 35. The first use of this word, this phrase in this section and in Numbers chapter 10, what we see is that the children of Israel, they were prepared to leave Mount Sinai. Moses had gone up, he had got the law, he had spoken it to the people. Now they were getting ready to be taken and led by Moses into the promised land, to the place of blessing, to the place of rest. Yet before they set out, what we know is that God had instructed it to be this way, that the Ark of the Covenant was to be sent out before them with this cry of Moses, always, Numbers chapter 10, verse 35. Rise up, Jehovah. Arise, O Lord. Rise up, O Lord. And then he goes on to say this. Let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee from before you. This is what David's referencing. This was something that was well known to the Hebrew people. It was a part of their history. It was a part of who they are and what they were for 40 years. Anytime they moved, as the ark went before them, it was always with this declaration, this request. Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee from before you. It was proclaimed to the people as they lined up to go. And the ark was sent out. And we know that when they went by day, that there was a cloud, the presence of God manifested in a cloud that covered them, and at night it was a pillar of fire. And the Lord went before them to scatter the enemies to cause those who hate him to, to flee. And this appears to be exactly what David had in mind when he called out to God in verse, in verse 17 here and also in the four other previous Psalms when he called out for the Lord to rise up because David went on to say this, rise up, confront, and cast down to deliver him from, in his life from the, from the wicked. In other words, David was remembering that God was the God of a covenant, of the covenant. And he was remembering that God ultimately in this was the one whom he was to follow. 
You see, wherever the cloud went, wherever the pillar went, wherever the ark went, that's where the people were to go. It makes sense. Arise up and go, Lord. Why? Because we're going to follow you. We're going to follow you. And David knew that God was the one to follow. And that's when he makes this statement, because if David had followed God, who was to rise up and go before him, then he would be what? Protected. He would be delivered from his enemies. But more importantly, he knew, as he referenced back to this Old Testament time when this was happening in the history of the nation of Israel, he knew that they, he would ultimately be led into the place of blessing to the promise. However, this would not be the case for the men of the world, right? That was not their end. They lived for their own pleasures, for the treasures, the temporal things of this life which are passing away, and not for the glory of God. And the result of this would be judgment, the judgment of God. And this is the greatest contrast between David and the men of the world. It's the greatest contrast between us and the people of this world today too, right? What is that? It's our destination, we're not destined for judgment. We're not destined for wrath. We're destined for the promise, the hope of eternal life. And so David declares this in this last verse, how his future would be much different, saying, as for me, I will see the face of God, and I shall be satisfied when I wake in his likeness. The worship team wants to come up, we'll end. It says, so, 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 so more, guys, more than the temporal pleasures of life, David desired to see God's face and to share in God's likeness. And, and, and think about that. When we think about the temporal pleasures of this life, we think about things. But in this instance, it wasn't just about things. It was, it was about being vindicated and, and, and all these other things in this time of stress. And what David is saying is, even if nothing happens here, in death, I will be with him. Even if my enemies are allowed to prevail with, against me in this life, he says, I, my hope is in, in, in the life to come. And that's why David, at the beginning of this psalm, could start off in this place where he would cry out to God with this song of joy, this prayer of joy in time of distress, in praise, in hope, in God. And I think that it's all rooted in this because of this last verse. In this last verse, the very cool thing is this word that's used, the word awake. And it's the same word that is used often in Scripture as a metaphor for the resurrection of the human body. And David is clearly speaking about the afterlife. In 1 Thessalonians, it talks about it, right? That we sleep, but then we wake into everlasting life. And so in this verse, it seems that, that, that David is, is, is saying, even when I die, the Lord won't desert me, for I shall wake up in your likeness and be given a glorified body, I shall see his face and be satisfied. And because David had this perspective, this perspective of eternity, he'd come to God in a time of distress with a hopeful and joyful heart. And that's my prayer for us today, that we could come to God no matter what's going on in our lives with a hopeful and joyful life because of the hope of eternity that we have waiting for us the hope of Jesus' return. Let's pray. And Lord, we know that our hope is sure. So I ask God that you would give us faith as we wait for your return. Lord, as we feel our, our, our bodies breaking down, Lord, because of the corruption that's in this world. Lord, as we see ourselves living in this sinful world 
Lord, help us to, to remember that this is not the end of it all, that our end is greater, that we, because of a new life, a new birth in you, Lord, have been given eternal life. And Lord, let, let a song of praise and joy fill our hearts, Lord, knowing that we operate from a place of victory already, that you've won, and that when we're on your side, Lord, everything is right. Lord, fill our hearts with joy again today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.